0: Hello, you're listening to Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wilchko. This week, we're looking back into the history of modern genetics and talking about the reality of making precision medicine for people with common diseases. First, we return to a common theme in this series, the power of mentorship.
1: Our guest today is David Altshuler, Global Research and Chief Scientific Officer at Vertex Pharmaceuticals. He is also a founding member of the Broad Institute, which was set up to empower a revolution in biomedicine and translate the Human Genome Project into products to benefit human health.
0: Our guest can truly be described as one of the founders of modern human genetics. He's the architect of three large projects that characterized and cataloged human genetic variation and mapped its relationships to common diseases. The starting point was mapping a new type of genetic variation called a single nucleotide polymorphism, or SNP. In order to generate a large map of commonly occurring SNPs in the human genome, he formed the SNP Consortium. Next, he led an international effort called the haplotype map, or HAPMAP, to determine how SNPs travel together in blocks called haplotypes. And then finally,
1: there was the creation of genome-wide association studies, or GWASs. Here, this used the insights of the HAPMAP, to perform case-control studies to identify genetic variants enriched in people with disease. What was found was that common variants are responsible for common diseases, but also that these diseases are complex. It is unlikely that a single personalized drug can be made for each person, as it can for rare diseases, as we talked about last week with Dr. Timothy Yu, who pioneered the
0: N-of-One trial. Our question today is how we got to where we are in terms of our understanding of the genetic basis of common diseases. David Altshuler, welcome to Theory and Practice. It's a pleasure
2: to be here with you today, Anthony.
0: To start it off, uh, as I look back at the course of my professional life, I had the good fortune of starting medical school in 2001, which is when the first draft of the human genome appeared. And over the next 20 years, I got to watch a remarkable intellectual revolution where we went from the first generation of the HapMap to the first generation of GWASs to next generation sequencing. And when I can think about people who ushered in this new world of complex trait human genetics, you know, I think it's fair to say there's no one who is more responsible for it than you. And so a lot of what we're going to talk about today on the show is that intellectual revolution of the last 20 years but before diving in in addition to always having admired your your intellectual work i've always had tremendous admiration for you personally and you've always been one of the biggest and most important mentors in my life and i imagine in your life you probably had one or two mentors along the way that really influenced you at branch points and how did that approach how you pay it forward to the next generation
2: well First of all, that's a very kind introduction. And uh, I have always said to people that one of the great pleasures of working at, at Harvard and MIT and Master on the Broad was the opportunity to work with remarkable people who would just literally walk in, knock in your door, and say, can I work with you? And Anthony, you were one of those people. So we can, have, we can turn the tables on you someday. But nonetheless, I'll answer your question. I guess I would mention a, a few different mentors, and I, I'm I'm pleased to hear you say that because I I do believe I do find mentorship to be one of the most gratifying things in my life and career. I guess the first I would say is my father. My father is a an academic, a professor of political science. He also was a government official at one time. Sort of moved between practice and theory, and is a remarkably selfless, giving, supportive person, not just to his children, but to his trainees and his colleagues. And I always watched him as children tend to watch. And I was always struck by the stories I would hear about him. When I was a a medical student at Harvard, one day I walked into the office where you had some piece of paper signed and I gave my name and the person said, oh, are you Alan Altschuler's son? And I said to the person behind the counter, yes, I am. Why do you ask? She said, well, she said, I worked for your father when he was in state government 20 years ago, or whatever it was at the time. He, she said, he told me when the phone rings, you should answer it and help whoever called whether or not it was the right phone number, because you're you're an official of the state and you should help the citizens. And she said, I didn't meet many people like that in government, but it stayed with me my whole life. And I thought, that's who my father is. That's who I want to be. Second mentor I'd mention is Connie Sepko, who I did my PhD with. I learned a lot from her, but the thing I would point to was, she was all about the science. You know, I, one of the things I found unattractive about academic science was the excessive focus on personal credit, how fancy the journal you published was, everything other than your experiment and how well it was designed and what you could get from it. And, and Connie really uh, taught me and spent a lot of time with me, just, I think, modeling, again, how you do science. And she gave a lot to her students. And so was my model of what it was to be a, someone running a lab. And then I guess the other person, you know, I had many clinical mentors, but, you know, Eric Lander, who I worked with for 18 years, was certainly uh, a mentor who taught me uh, that anything was possible, that you could uh, think big and tackle problems larger than yourself if you were prepared to rethink them, work together with others, invent new technologies, raise the resources, et cetera, et cetera. So from each of these mentors, I learned different aspects of how to lead and how to train and how to think. And I like to believe I was able to put together what works for me from some of those different individuals into how I do it.
1: Oh, in addition to mentors, uh, you know, the educational culture we grow up in the school that we go to can, can really shape our lives because we can find some of our mentors there and it can shape our perspective on the world. And I read that the school that you went to had one rule only no roller skating in the corridors and what does that mean to you then and and what does it mean to you now
2: yeah it's it's a great question i think it was actually no roller skating in the halls but in the halls Um, yes so now since you've asked i have to tell just a little bit of context about that school i i went to a school called the commonwealth school in boston which is a very small uh, academically oriented urban high school in back bay in boston A very small school. There were 30 people in my graduating class. So there's like 100 at that time, 120 students for four years. It was founded by a man named Charles Merrill. who's was a remarkable man, the son of the Charles Merrill who founded Merrill Lynch. Our Charles Merrill was born into wealth and had a great sense of obligation to the world. And among the things he did was create this urban high school in the 1950s that was dedicated to, uh, for example, uh, racial equity and, uh, you know, intellectual life and things that, that were even more uh, unusual then than they are now. I was kind of a nerdy loser kind of kid when I was 14 or 13. And Charles Merrill, who was the sort of god of the school, took an interest in me one day and called me into his office. He was an interesting guy, but he said, uh, anyone who knew him will get this anecdote. He said, some people say you're a bad kid. Some people say you're a good kid. I think you're a good kid. Why don't you go prove me right? And it actually meant a tremendous amount to me that he noticed me and that he thought there was something in me because I was kind of acting out and everything. And he was actually a very important figure in my life. No roller skating in the halls means don't be a damn fool. That's actually how he would say it. So what Mr. Merrill would say, it was his line, was the only rule here is no roller skating in the halls, which means don't be a damn fool. Use your common sense. Try and do the right thing, but don't do things that are stupid. And that's what he meant by no roller skating in the halls.
0: Excellent. That's a great story, David. So now let's fast forward a little bit. You did your undergrad at MIT, your MD-PhD at Harvard Med School. As you said, you worked with Connie Sepko and then residency and fellowship in endocrinology at MGH. But let's fast forward to that moment when you started your postdoc with Eric Lander at the Whitehead Genome Center. What was the state of human genetics at that time? And what did you set out to do when you joined Eric's lab?
2: Yeah, it was actually July 1st, 1997, when I first went to work in Eric's lab. I had been searching for some way to connect the patients in front of me in the hospital to mechanistic biology. And I'd come to the view that human genetics could do that. But actually, I really wanted to study complex traits, not Mendelian traits. And Eric was the only person I met in the world who uh, was interested in that. And I started in his lab, and the state of things at the time was, first, nobody really thought the human genome was going to be particularly interesting. I know that because in going to say that I was going to work with Eric Lander, I got to talk to all the grandees of Harvard and MIT, who I'd already been in the community for whatever it was at that time, over a decade, and I said, I'm going to go work with Eric Lander on the Human Genome Project. And They all said, you're crazy. You're going to destroy your career. That's a factory project. That's blue-collar work. That's not very interesting. There's no questions. It's just a bunch of machines. I didn't agree. I was interested in complex trait genetics, but the state of the field was you could collect data from pedigrees and you could try and do hundreds of markers and do a linkage study, but they had failed for complex traits because there weren't one or a few genes that explained common diseases. And then you could do association studies with one or a small number of genetic variants, but they wouldn't work because you didn't know what genes to look at. And really no one had a way out of that, but there was this concept that, well, if you had the human genome sequence, it almost seemed ludicrous. What I'm about to say to you, which of course what (laughs) happened, felt much more ludicrous then than it does today. But even saying today, it seems a little weird. Imagine you lived in a world where there's like, known to humankind are like a thousand genetic variants in all of the genome. There are millions and millions of them. You can study them one at a time in samples of a hundred people. And you say, I want to go find all the genetic variants that explain diabetes or schizophrenia or heart attack. Eric and I actually had this discussion where I I had some ideas and I was chasing after him one day as he walked to get a sandwich or something. That's how you talk to Eric in those days and probably (laughs) continued that way. So it's such a bundle of energy and activity. And uh, I stopped him and I said, Eric, you don't seem interested in what I'm saying. He turned to me, he said, well, do you think it's going to work? And I said, well probably not. And he goes, well, what do you think it would really take to do it? You know, why don't you write me a page that says, what do you really think? And we developed this plan. It wasn't even a plan. It was just, it was like sequence the human genome, know all the genetic variants, test the genetic variants. The sample sizes will have to be very large. You know, there were other people talking about some of these things, but then we did start building a plan for how to do it. Now you have to remember this is 1997 and the genome wasn't supposed to be sequenced for the first time for like eight or 10 years. It was in 1998 that Solera announced their project and then timelines accelerated. But what's amazing is the the sort of plan, Eric and I and a number of others, Mark Daly and George Daly was there actually and Pamela Sklar and John Ryu. There are a number of people at the Whitehead Genome Center. We wrote this, I don't want to call it a plan. It was just an aspirational vision, you know, that some other people were talking about as well. Sequence the genome, know all the variants, test small and large samples, develop the statistical methods, you know, et cetera. And uh, the amazing thing is within 10 years it all happened.
0: Wow. And and so walk a little bit more through what happened. I mean, you know, what was the hat map project all about? What motivated it? How did you come to lead it? Um, What's the story there?
2: Well, the story of how I came to lead things is really a fairly simple one, which was that everyone more senior was busy with more important things, okay? (laughs) So what I mean by that was, when I joined the group, there were very few people actually working in genomics. It's hard to believe, but it really is true. And even when I would try and recruit in people to work with us, most of them were uninterested and would run screaming because it was just not seen as what you did. You were supposed to work in an individual lab, pipetting, studying a single gene that was already well-credentialed and doing mechanistic experiments, not say things like, well, if we could sequence the genome and do all this, we might find things that no one knows about that are important. So... The first thing was there weren't many people involved. The second was sequencing the human genome was sort of the big thing. So all the people like Eric and Francis Collins and Bob Waterston and, Jet and John Sulston and all these other people were very busy with that. So the actual way I came to lead first the SNP consortium and then the HapMap projects were the SNP consortium. One day Eric called me up on a Saturday night and said, David, what are you doing tomorrow morning at 9am? And I thought to myself, I don't know, sleeping late. <laughs> I said, um, you know, I think I'm going to be getting up late and then having a bagel. He said, no, we're writing a grant, you know, so I showed up at the Whitehead Genome Center at 9am, just Eric and I, he somehow decided I was helpful and a thought partner, and said, you know, there's this idea, we should build a SNP map of the human genome, how should we do it? So we literally like wrote a grant. And that grant ended up leading to A paper I published in Nature about what's called Reduced Representation Shotgun Sequencing, which is a way to discover genetic variants before you had a genome sequence in large number. It ended up leading to a computational methodology that we used because everyone was actually doing it by eye at that point, calling variants, and we figured out we needed a computer to do it. And then as the genome project accelerated and the data accumulated, it became clear to our surprise that we'd be able to publish simultaneously the first sequence of the human genome and a genetic map with over a million genetic variants, which was a hundred times as many as we had two years earlier. And I ended up just being the person, I guess, who had the bandwidth and time to lead that. So it was sort of, it wasn't, I was zero, I was still a postdoc, but I'm the senior author on a paper in Nature in the genome issue where one paper is called like the sequencing of the human genome. And the other one is another one is a map of 1.4 million SNPs or whatever that uh, I was a postdoc when I was the senior author on that paper, just because. As I've discovered in my life, leaders are as leaders do. So at that time, then the topic of haplotype structure became important for two reasons. One was just because it exists. So Mark Daly, uh, working two doors down, had built the first high density haplotype map of a human gene region. Uh, He and John Ryu were working with Eric and Tom Hudson and others. So,
0: what's a haplotype?
2: It just turns out that the way we inherit our genes is not one letter at a time, but we inherit chromosomes. And the chromosomes have a particular pattern of letters on them uh, that we inherit from shared ancestors. And because in meiosis, when you pass your genes down from parent to child, there's only one recombination or shuffling per chromosome arm per generation, and chromosome arms are tens to a hundred million letters long. What you pass down to your children is not like a letter, but it's actually a string of letters that are all inherited from a shared ancestor. And that string of letters is called a haplotype. So with that, the topic of what those haplotype patterns are became timely for sort of three reasons. The first was, until you could actually study genome sequences in high resolution of individuals, you couldn't even see the patterns existed because remember I told you there were only a thousand genetic variants known to humankind, at the time, and you can only study them one at a time. It turned out the way you could discover these patterns I'm describing, these barcodes that are handed down from generation to generation, was you needed to study hundreds and thousands of genetic variants all in a small region. No one could do that before. So we were blind to this for the most part. And so when when Mark Daly built one of the first such detailed maps of a disease region, he saw this very striking pattern where there were Uh, Very simple haplotype patterns, meaning instead of, you know, if you have, um, let's say, just for the sake of discussion, let's say you had 10 genetic variants, each of which had a 50-50 frequency, the number of combinations of those is 2 to the 10th, right, which is a large number. So if you looked at 1,000 chromosomes and there were 2 to the 10th possibilities, every one of them should be unique. But if you actually looked at 1,000 chromosomes for 10 genetic variants in a row, you typically see like five patterns. 400 people will have one of those patterns and 200 people will have a second pattern and 100 people have the third, et cetera, et cetera. So when Mark did that for the first time and looked at it, the first thing was, wow, is that general, right? Is that just this region of the genome? or Is it general? So I ended up, part of coming out of that SNP consortium project was we had the genetic variants we discovered and some of the tools. So we did a quick follow-on study of Mark's one gene study and studied a bunch of regions across the genome and a bunch of populations and showed that that pattern was general. It wasn't just this one gene, it was the whole genome. The second reason it was important was purely practical. At the time, it was not impossible to envision, even for us, sequencing whole genomes routinely to get every letter. But what these patterns showed was if if there were many redundant genetic variants that all had the same pattern, you wouldn't need to measure every one of them. You could just measure a subset and derive the pattern of the other, a classic imputation. So the idea of the HapMap was to build the reference lookup table so that everyone could do genetic association studies, not having to test all of them, but just selecting a set of high information, so-called tag SNPs. And this whole enterprise, uh, which it was a very exciting time. Because literally, like every three months, you know, you could change the world in terms of what you knew and what you could do, because the data was accumulating, the methods was really about something very profound, which is human population history, human chromosomal biology, and how inheritance works in free-living populations, about which relatively little was known empirically, although there was a lot of theory. And we really had the chance as a field, and I had the chance as as a scientist. To really write stuff that I am sure is going to be in the history books 100 years from now because they just simple facts about how our species and other species' inheritance works. There were some people who were very excited about it. You were one, Anthony. But there were a lot of people who were very hostile to it. And that's because they thought it was actually some sort of assertion of how the world should be, whereas I always saw it as just an empirical observation of how the world was. And I felt like as scientists, it wasn't our job to uh, ignore something as fundamental as how polygenic are human traits? How many gene variants are there in our species? Where did they come from? But there were a lot of scientists who were surprisingly hostile to these observations because they were really wedded to the idea on the science side that the genetics of disease was either was much simpler than we were saying, all rare genetic variants that were Mendelian or more complex, not even knowable. And we were just saying, can we put our heads down and just collect the data and see what it tells us? And what's exciting is most of those debates like other debates in science absent data, have faded away with time because once you get the data, no one really debates anymore are complex traits polygenic, even though that was a topic on the front page of the New York Times as recently as like 12 years ago. No one debates it anymore because having sequenced the genomes of hundreds of thousands of people, the data speak. And actually the models we talked about 20 years ago have turned out pretty much to be uh, played out in data And the parts we got wrong, we've corrected empirically. And actually, we were more right than wrong, whether or not some of the people at the time were uncomfortable with it, uh, have been honest enough just to say, here's what the data showed.
0: So let me double click on that, because I think this is something that most people don't appreciate. I I think there's this pernicious myth that we're going to take type 2 diabetes or coronary artery disease and carve it up into 100 different diseases, each with a different genetic lesion. And then we're going to make a drug that's specific to each patient. And a lot of the work that you showed was that that's not what it looks like, at least not uh, at first blush. So say a little more.
2: Well, what's interesting is that the model you described, which is sort of a Mendelian disease model. So Mendelian genetics is the case where there's a single gene variant or collection of gene variants in a gene that have a very large effect size and that uh, are sufficient, necessary and sufficient to cause the disease. So it travels in families like a Mendelian trait. And before there was any data, there were people who showed, I'm talking 25 years ago, there were people based on, for example, or 20 years ago, based on Gleevec, who would say, well, here's cancer, case of cancer, where there's a very small number of people who have a very specific genetic lesion, and you can have a treatment just for them. And then they made a a pinwheel. Now that disease is going to become lots of individual things like that. And in addition, all the other diseases are going to be like that. That's what I call uh, irresponsible extrapolation. And so I heard that before I began, you know, that like this, I mean, literally 25 years ago, that like that's what diabetes was. The data shows something very different. There's perhaps 5% of people with diabetes, I think it's less, who have what's called Modi diabetes, maturity onset diabetes of the young, and they have a strong effect Mendelian mutation that is necessary and sufficient in that family to because disease. But for the vast majority of people, it's a complex polygenic trait, meaning there are many genetic variants as well as environmental factors that contribute. And the reason we know that is because over the course of that period of time before I moved to Vertex, not only did we do genome-wide association studies in tens of thousands of people, now hundreds of thousands, but actually our group was the first group, I think, in any disease to actually try and take this question on empirically. We did exome and whole genome sequencing of very large populations to ask the question are there rare genetic variants, a very large effect in type two diabetes that we're missing? And we published those papers like in nature and other journals. And the answer was no. And it doesn't mean there aren't any rare variants. There are, they're just not Mendelian. And so what I find most amazing, but I'm an optimist, so I don't worry about it too much because I think the truth will out is there are still people I go to meetings who say type two diabetes, when you're finished with the genetics is going to be a pinwheel of a hundred different genetic diseases. And I just go, well, I guess there's some people who believed it before. Then you collect all the data and they still believe it because they don't pay attention to the data now when that happens in politics we sort of dismiss them and say well they're not following the science they're just sort of engaging in belief over empirical data but i think in science we should in medicine we should do better so the data have told us over the last 20 years what the genetic basis of common diseases is to large extent it's complex and these diseases will not be turned into a collection for the most part of you know individually rare simple traits whether or not people want to assert they will or not.
0: When I look at the course of your career in human genetics, and we'll get to your career after human genetics later, there were three moments that I wonder what it must have been like. The first is the early days of the human genome when you started to be able to build the original SNP consortium and realized we could actually map SNPs. The second is that period right when the hat was finished and you're about to do the first generation of GWASs and you don't know what you're gonna find. And then the third period, which was actually when I joined your lab, which was right when the Selexa, later Illumina machines showed up. And finally, it was the chance to go back to the dream of your postdoc of sequencing 10,000 people. Which of those three moments was the most exciting for you and why?
2: Hmm. Well, the most exciting for me personally was the first, but that's because of where it fit into my own life, my own professional development. You know, I can, I can make a difference. You know, we, we can learn things, you know, that was the most exciting to me because it was a sense of personal growth and development. Even you know, remember I was, I got my first faculty position in 2000. I was 36. It's an, it's an awful long time to go. Not quite sure where you fit in or whether or not you can succeed, which is really where I was emotionally, you know, like, did, I, could I do this? Could I be a world-class scientist? And that was exciting to me to, uh, to see that happen, you know, just to live through it. Science, I, I love history, as you know, Anthony. And when I when I lecture to medical students or when I give talks today, you know, with CF, where I work now at Vertex, we work on cystic fibrosis. I start in 1938 when Dorothy Anderson describes the disease. I point out there were 50 years until the gene was cloned in 1989. Pretty quick, the molecular biology was figured out, but the first medicine was approved based on it in 2012. Actually, we moved pretty quickly from 2012 to 2019. Four medicines that now get to the majority of people with cF all these stories are like that, so like I have a long view of history. There were three Nobel prizes for cholesterol before the statins were developed okay I, that's true actually, so like in my view, I take a long view of history, and my question is how is not you know whether or not the human genetics I was involved in or any or any type of human genetics has explained everything? Nothing explains everything, but I think that If you go back to really uh, 1980, when David Botstein published the paper saying you could build a genetic map using polymorphisms, 1986, the first paper that was a human genetic map, and at the same year, uh, Lou Kunkel describes Duchenne muscular dystrophy, Stu Orkin chronic granulomatous disease. Now we have thousands of Mendelian diseases. You think about the first common genetic variants for disease like HLA in the 60s, And then you have a few examples. And then starting with GWAS, now we have 100,000. These are things that are foundational. And I think that if not my generation or your generation or our kids, human genetics is a foundational tool. And we will understand this in the decades to come.
1: One thing that I want to return to was an idea that you mentioned about factory projects this career killing genre of science and clearly that wasn't the case it made careers not just yours but many many peoples and I think it might be related but you know you were one of the four founding members of the Broad Institute in 2004 and I was wondering if you could tell us about the vision of the Broad and then kind of extend the story through your move to Vertex, what threads you draw through through those uh, stages of your life?
2: To me, the the thread that that really carries it through is teamwork and working collaboratively. I trained at Mass General in the medical system there, which is called the team based system, the Bigelow Medical Service, and that was my favorite experience by far. That's in that setting. Instead of as at some other hospitals, actually at most hospitals, each intern admits alone, and they have, they're almost like their own little. Silo, you know, working independently at Mass General and the on the Bigelow service, we all as a team took care of the patients. And when the teamwork wasn't great, it wasn't good. But man, when the teamwork was great, it was a joy. And what I found wonderful about my PhD was I loved working with Connie Sepko, I loved the problems, but I didn't actually love the individual aspect of it. I wanted, I realized I liked teams. So when I came to genomics, I think one of the reasons I liked it was because. Eric very much oriented towards teamwork and collaboration, and, and and I have the ability to lead teams as well as follow. And I found that opportunity with, as I described, with the SNP consortium, the HapMap. It was an intoxicating time, as I said, but not only because at the same time that was happening is when we decided uh, Eric led us, but together with Stuart and Todd and others to create an institute dedicated to this teamwork in science enabled by these technologies. And that happened as well. And I really felt That I had found my home or the way of doing it. Now, I I share these anecdotes not actually to be churlish, I'm about to share another one, but to let people who do things differently know it's okay to do things differently if you you have good reasons. There was a lot of uh, consternation about team-based science. There was a lot of sense that's not how science is done. It's supposed to be an individual activity.
1: There is this myth of the lone intellectual that I guess you kind of have to rail against a little bit here.
2: Um, Yeah, there is. There's sort of this idea, you know, uh, that it's all done by individuals. I just categorically reject that. I think even things that are attributed to individuals are usually actually the culmination of work by a lot of people. And so the creation of the Broad was uh, sort of instantiating in an organization, the multi-institutional, multidisciplinary collaboration that was working f- for genomics. And, and then for me, because I, I was a, a, an academic and I did really uh, believe in and care about training young people, The key was, you know, how do you thrive and get credit in such an environment? And I'm incredibly proud of the people I trained in my lab, of which Anthony is one. But there are many of them who are successful faculty. There are many who are successful in business or successful in other things. And um, in fact, there's almost no one who has not done well. And so I put my track record training people in that environment, uh, you know, alongside others who did it in a different environment. But uh, I think that the, the key thing is about mentoring and training is, that you care about the individual, that you actually help them make a meaningful contribution that is distinctive, even if it's part of a team and that they get recognition for what they deserve and share the other. And I just think it was the bias of a lot of people in academia, much of which has been, I think, overcome again by data over time. That The only way you could build a career was to work on your own and compete with others as opposed to you could build a career by working together with others. I just think it's people who like to work alone and compete with people who told that story and maybe some of them were successful, so they got to be the bosses. And then some of us got to be successful. And we you said, well, you, you, can, you can do that if you want, but you could also collaborate. That's okay too, as long as you make a meaningful contribution.
0: You know, David, I feel like we could talk to you for hours and actually, you know, in some ways almost document important moments in the history of science. Um, anything before we end today that you wanna uh, tell our listeners?
2: Yeah, I'd like to just share a story from about two hours ago, which is uh, David Ginsberg, who is a, a wonderful physician scientist, professor at University of Michigan. Um, I happened to have him give a seminar at Vertex because we have a seminar series at Vertex. And he gave the seminar two hours ago. And he's one of the people I admire tremendously. And um, he and I were talking about science then versus science now. You know, I entered medical school 35 years ago. He's a bit uh, further along than I am. What he said, I was struck by it, is, you know, every, you know, it's changed and there's things that are different and some are better, some are worse. But the thing that's so amazing and that I want to leave everyone with is what an incredible time to do science. The things we know, the tools we have, the possibilities, he was describing experiments he had done and that we've all been a part of different experiments that like no one could have dreamed you could do these things. And I think also no one could have dreamed of the benefits that have come to society, of things like when I go back to when I was just back then, you know, when I was starting school, curative therapy for HIV, which was just beginning, or, you know, highly effective antiretroviral therapy, no one could imagine that. Immuno-oncology, hepatitis C. Uh, In addition, um, so many cases, you know, targeted cancer therapy, uh, the the biologics for autoimmune disease. There's so many amazing things that have been done And with the knowledge and tools we have today, so many things to be done, that I just can't imagine a better time to do science. And I hope that the young people listening to this just recognize the world is your oyster and there's so many problems to be solved. And don't worry too much about uh, people looking backwards to the way it used to be. They're thinking backwards. You should think forward.
1: That's absolutely amazing advice. Thank you so much for that.
0: Thanks for being on the show today, David.
2: It's a pleasure. I love seeing you guys. And if there's anything uh, you'd like to talk about in the future, please uh, invite me back.
0: Thank you. Huge thanks to David Altshuler. We always take time at the end of each episode In the spirit of regular in-person meetups in Boston many years ago, to discuss a big problem, the nail, and possible solutions, the hammers, inspired by what we just heard. Alex, what do you have this week, a hammer or a nail? I I, I might ask your help in categorizing it as
1: either a hammer or a nail, but it's about certainly carpentry, if we're going to stretch this metaphor (laughs) as far as we possibly can. I want to talk about something called Moravec's paradox. Have you have you heard of Moravec's paradox? I have not. Tell me. So it's a it's an idea by a fellow named Hans Moravec who was a 20th century I guess I guess you could call him the philosopher. And the the basic idea is and I think Stephen Pinker kind of summarized it most succinctly is for computers easy things are hard and hard things are easy. <laughs> Meaning that adding a bunch of numbers or multiplying two numbers with a hundred digits each is super easy for a computer, but good luck getting a computer to do nearly anything that a toddler can do. So the the question behind this is why is that the case? So the the more kind of precise formulation by Hans Moravec is reasoning requires very little computation. And the programs to do reasoning are, are a lot easier to write then the ones that do motor skills or sensation. So, sensor and motor skills require very, very large computational resources. And we don't really know why, but the hypothesis is the ability to add numbers or play chess has evolved very, very, very late in evolution, almost like a blink of an eye, like almost no time at all compared to the history of evolving life on planet Earth but the ability to move is very old. The ability to see, the ability to hear and smell are evolutionarily very, very old. So something that's hard for us, like adding a a bunch of really big numbers, well, it's hard for us maybe because evolution hasn't had a lot of time to make that easy. And the things that we don't even think about, evolution has been cracking on for tens or hundreds of millions of years. And so the fact that it's easy for us is actually a gift from the enormous evolutionary history that's brought us to this current day. I mean, all of our ancestors were, you know, we're getting slightly better at these tasks over time until they're basically invisible to us.
0: So uh, let me ask you, Alex, uh, that's really interesting. That does a good job of explaining for me why the things that are hard for humans are hard and why the things that are easy for humans are easy. But now why is it reversed in computers? Because we certainly managed to get computers to add big numbers together, earlier than we got computers to be able to, um, do things like, you, you know, grab a blanket and fold it with robotics.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know if we've, we've got the solution for that, um, as to why it's so hard to get computers to do these things. Um, the, the paradox is generally an observation that this is seems to be true is that the things that are unconscious for us are, we're looking at the tip of the iceberg that there's an enormous amount of kind of neural computation, that's happening in order to make those things possible, and very little of it rises to our consciousness. And it's all that, you know, implementation inside of the brain that's going on that's allowing us to grab a blanket and fold it very, very easily. Uh, That's something that we're going to have to work very, very hard to get computers to do. And I think this is related to what David Altshuler was speaking with us about. And I think if you see the trajectory of his career, his life, you know, has been about Constructing the genotype to phenotype map. And, and a lot of his large projects were taking us on a journey collectively as a field and as a species in understanding how our genes become behaviors or disease uh, and understanding that relationship. And he's got this whole new journey of understanding the molecular mechanisms that allow this to take place. And the genome is big, I mean, many billions of, of base pairs. And the relationship between genotype and disease is incredibly complex. And it's probably of such a complexity that the unaided human mind will be unable to understand the relationship between genotype and phenotype. And in order to understand that relationship, we're probably going to need computers. We're probably going to need to collaborate with computers. And, And just as AlphaGo we, you know, we were able to teach AlphaGo through examples and then self-play how to play the game of Go. And it even surfaced new Go strategies for playing an ancient game. It's very likely that we'll need to collaborate with computers where you know, human ingenuity and the kind of unconscious pattern matching abilities that we have uh, will likely need to be fused with the abilities that computers have for massive computation. Uh, And collaborating, uh, that's probably the way forward, at least uh, from where I'm sitting in order to understand this complex relationship between genotype and disease and genotype and um, healthy
0: phenotype. You know, this idea of kind of, I think it's often called like centaurs for kind of human computer Mm. hybrids, right? You know, you hear about it a lot in chess and Go. What do you think is the field of science where we're likely to see this first take place, this kind of human-computer interaction, to go after deep questions? Is it you know, protein folding? Is it computational neuroscience? Is it human genetics like you were just saying? I, I, I struggle to name one because it's happening to
1: varying degrees in, in all of these places. I mean, computers are, are ubiquitous. And it's, it's so woven into our society these days. I think we, we miss it even today. For instance, accounting, is fundamentally changed because of the invention of the spreadsheet. Mm. Photography is fundamentally changed after the invention of the digital camera and Photoshop. And I think these are little inventions that, that are kind of these, um, I guess, Steve Jobs used to call it bicycles for the mind, right? augmentations, or as centaurs, as you call it, you know, a human-computer collaboration. These are becoming pervasive. And I, I think there is no branch of science
0: that will, will be untouched by this, and perhaps even the liberal arts as well. You know, on that last point, one of the things I've noticed is um, a lot of the prompts in Google Docs or Gmail have actually made me a much better writer, right? Yeah, I know that I noticed that I'm a much better writer now than I used to be because it's autocorrecting me and giving me suggestions and things like that. And, you know, I've managed to make my writing much more simple and direct and to the point because of these prompts. And you can just imagine where that will go. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think... In in these little ways that
1: will continue to proliferate, you know, we'll be improving ourselves and help you know improving our computers in, in a virtuous cycle, and I think that will eventually touch our abilities to
0: cure human diseases as well. You know, I think the genotype phenotype map is an interesting area to double click on because, as you say, there are so many different levels of biology. You know, biology is a little bit um, hierarchical in, in how we approach it. You know, you have the raw information of DNA and RNA. And then you have this kind of level of molecules in terms of protein and, and little molecular machines. You know, you have the level of cells. Next week, we're going to be talking to Aviv Gev, who kind of pioneered cell biology 2.0. We're starting to enter the era of a new kind of histology where we can better map the structure of tissues and the molecules between them. And then of course you have these levels of questions that are truly physiology that doctors kind of think about the most like the circulatory system or or things like that and when you think about now trying to go from a single change in the genetic alphabet to understanding and i'll choose one of my favorite diseases why someone gets heart failure it certainly traverses all of these levels of biology Uh, and as you say to be able to integrate across them and sort of construct a narrative, it's very unlikely that any one individual can hold uh, all of the relevant information in their head at the same time.
1: Absolutely. And this is, this is an area where we need to work with computers. We need to depend on them. And we need to build new methods. I think there's a, there's a, there's a dearth of methods for dealing with truly hierarchical data. And we can kind of get into that Uh, I think in more depth, uh, some other time. But suffice to say that we uh, haven't solved it. But this is an area of immense importance, as you say. And I'm really excited about the frontier that we're living at today, and the possibilities that are available today in improving
0: human health. All right. Thanks so much, Alex. Great talking to you today. You too, Anthony.
1: Coming up in the next couple of episodes is Aviv Regev from Genentech and A.B. Abernathy, formerly of the FDA and Flatiron Health. If you've got any questions for us or our guests, email theoryandpractice
0: at gv.com or tweet at gvteam. We'd love to hear from you. This is a GV podcast and a Blanchard House production. Our producers were Hilary Geit, Lily Omani, Nico Raufast, and Rosie Pye, with music by Dalo. I'm Anthony Filipakis. I'm Alex Wilczko, and this is Theory & Practice.